Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization Podcast. I'm Simon Mabon, and today I'm joined by Eskandar Sadegi Borujerdi, lecturer in political theory at the Department of Politics and International Relations, Goldsmith University of London. Eskandar has written a great deal on, on comparative political theories, focusing predominantly on Iran, and he's the author of an absolutely fabulous book entitled Revolution and its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, published by Oxford, and it came out in in February this year. Eskandar, thank you so much for joining us. It's really exciting to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. It's great to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, as, as someone who is an aspiring political theorist with another hat on, it's great to have someone who is a, a lecturer in comparative political theories. And I think there's a great deal that that I personally am going to, I'm going to be able to learn from you and, and hopefully get out of this podcast. No, so, likewise. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. It'll definitely be one way, hopefully the other way as well. But, <laughs> but let's see. Um, Iskandar, can you tell us how you got interested in, in political theory and history and intellectual thought generally? I mean, you started with a, a, a BSc in government and history, I believe. So you've had quite a journey. Yeah, I mean, um, I kind of see my academic career sort of um, bringing together two things which I would say were sort of fundamental um, concerns. I mean, yeah, politics and, in many respects, sort of Islamic political thought, um, particularly within the sort of the Iranian context. But I mean, yeah, as an undergrad, I studied actually history of political thought a lot. I mean, it was it was sort of the it was the thing that really um, captured my interest more right. than anything. You know, the whole canon from Plato through Cicero to Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke, and you know. Uh, through to the very contemporary thinkers like Arendt, um, etc. Sure. Um, so I, I, I took that very sort of seriously and was absolutely sort of uh, um, infatuated with it in a way. You could say. And then I went, and then I threw, then after that I pursued sort of graduate work in uh, content philosophy. So then I studied um, Kant, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche. Uh, worked a lot on phenomenology as well, right. so Heidegger and Husserl and things like this. Um, but I always had a sort of, uh, I was mainly concerned in sort of political ideas, political concepts, uh, and then how they sort of can be used, operationalized, um, and sort of drawn upon in more sort of concrete political and social struggles. Sure. So, so at, at that time for your, for your undergraduate, let's say, um, just for now, who were the thinkers that really got you intrigued? I mean, you mentioned you did the whole canon. Who were the ones that stood out for you? I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, I would say the ones who really, really captured my attention that really sort of gripped me were, I would say, yeah, Marx. Um, Marx, who I, I really read as a, as a sort of a teenager, um, so there were sort of two thinkers. I would have to really go back further because I mean, um, I can say sort of two books really shaped my 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 thinking, my intellectual sort of disposition or temperament, and through to the present. I mean, one was reading Malcolm X's autobiography, as sort of you know, as a 15, 14, 15 year old. Yeah. Um, which absolutely, I think, transformed my life actually in many ways. Um, and the second was really the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. So yeah. So I mean, which is I'm, which is which is quite common. I'm sure it's not at all. It's not at all remotely a unique uh, 
case, but basically these two, um, and I was very interested in sort of Islamic liberation theology as well. So I mean, even out of the, it was more out of, many was out of the academic context as well. So reading people like Ali Shariati, yeah, uh, uh, reading uh, Mahan Babar Sadr, things like this, um, as a teenager, uh, had and sort of looking at Islamic liberation theology through a sort of a more informed also. Uh, analytical lens shaped by Marxism um, and the Frankfurt School and things like this did have a big, 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 big decisive impact, I would say. It's really interesting to hear you say that. How did you get into this Islamic political theology then? If it if it's not through the the sort of traditional undergraduate study of, of philosophical thoughts, how did you get into that? Well, I mean, uh, I'm Iranian, so... Um, sure. I mean, the revolution was sort of something which was just always there. I mean, it's sort of on a very mundane, everyday level. It's constantly spoken about. I mean, even irrespective of political leanings, it kind of marks a rupture, I think, in many, many kind of Iranian uh, families. So even if it's very crudely spoken about, I mean, this sort of curiosity was very much there. And I think that sort of... um, coalesced with both kind of the, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 91, and then and then obviously 9-11 and this sort of pervasive sense of Islamophobia uh, and, you know, the, the air sort of palpably changed. And then I was just very much drawn to, I think, thinking about, yeah, like, like many, thinking about yourself, thinking about your own identity, thinking of yourself as, you know, as a you know, practicing uh, young Muslim at the time, um, and try and sort of work out where you stand in that uh, in that moment. Really. Yeah. And then obviously you find many like-minded people. So I mean, I think it was largely through uh, circles of friends who were who were sort of reading these things, reading Shariati, reading Sadr, reading. I'm um, looking to the Iranian Revolution often with kind of uh, rose-tinted uh, glasses. Yeah, of course. Uh, trying to really understand uh, what happened. I mean, understand why, how we got here, why we got here, uh, what happened. Um, um, as well as sort of, like I said, that was always in a sort of a tension with the discourses around sort of good and bad Muslim, uh, which is so deeply problematic today, and sort of trying to yeah, grapple with like what we're doing, sort of who are we uh, at that moment. And so from, from a very kind of personal, you could say existential um, series of concerns, which again, is not at all unusual. I mean, I think many um, pe- people who are sort of children of immigrants have faced some similar Yeah try to sort of grapple with similar questions. Um, but yeah, obviously that led to sort of, you know, when you when you realise that your uncle's sort of take on certain things is limited <laughs> and mm. deeply problematic, you start to look for yourself and then you, then you encounter this huge sort of academic uh, literature and then you start thinking for yourself about these things um, like we all do. So yeah. um, that's sort of the personal, more personal side to um, what was, yeah, my, which then later became um, an academic, uh, sort of uh, more professionalised <laughs> right. uh, component towards these things, yeah. So before we delve into that, I, I wonder if I can just take you back to, to sort of the post-9-11 context. And a number of, of people that we've had on the, the podcast have have spoken about 9-11 as sort of a, a key moment that, that sparked interest in, in the, the Middle East, in Islam, and the, the sort of the rising Islamophobia, if you will. I wonder if, if you can just sort of reflect the back on, on that time and, and that, that particularly worrying sort of securitized time. 
and and your reflections as as an Iranian, someone who is interested in in these uh, Islamic liberation theologies, if you can reflect a little bit about that time and how you you try to reconcile all of those emotions. Um. I mean, I don't. In a way, like for me, nine eleven wasn't so much a break. To be honest, I mean, as you know, growing up, I think in British society, like, uh, and often sort of in quite polarized communities, you definitely had a sense that uh, uh, that you were somehow that there was there was an issue, and obviously you did live, uh, you know, racism and um, discrimination. That was very much part of. Uh, who you were, and you know, trying to actually understand how to how to come to terms with it was obviously was part of my my response to sort of looking at Islamic liberation theology. In the sense, was part of my response to how to deal with that as a sort of uh, some as a Muslim in British uh, society, in a way. And it wasn't so much that there was a break with nine eleven. I think just nine eleven made it um, much sharper. Yeah, sure. Uh, made it much sharper for us. Um, and the fact that you knew you were very conscientious that you know uh, if I grow my beard I'm going to be I'm going to be sort of highlighted or I'm going to be singled out if I if I speak out on a certain thing I'm going to be more sort of visible so this whole question of visibility and this is like I mean this is like with many sort of stigmas and stigmatizations you sort of take them on as a sort of rebellion um, yeah. Um, so I think also my embrace of it was part of you know taking on that stigmatization and sort of saying okay um, I'm you know we're not good. we're not this sort of um, as a community or whatever or as an individual uh, I'm not this sort of cliche or this um, stereotype and I'm not going to play that game and I'm actually going to define myself so it was in a sense it was a way of taking back power sort of you know empowering yourself by defense which is a very very you know like Goffman and so many people have spoken about. Yeah. At least now, which obviously I was completely oblivious to that at the time. But uh, when you kind of reflect on it, you realise, yeah, what I was doing was really just taking on that stigma and asserting, and you know, asserting myself in a more aggressive sort of fashion. Because uh, in a sense, it was a response to like years of having, you know, feeling that you can't, that you know, that you're denigrated, that you're less than, that uh, you can't speak freely about who you are and uh, these issues uh, for fear that you might, you know, have certain aspersions cast on you. You might be calumniated. All these sorts of things. So. Um, it was a very kind of yeah. This is why this is, this is sort of a very personal sort of dimension to it, which I don't ever really speak about in my uh, work. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I don't think it's possible for us to remove ourselves from it. So it's interesting to, to hear you reflecting on this. And I guess with your your philosophical background, you're you're well placed not only to reflect on this now, but I guess perhaps looking back on it, that that philosophical curiosity is. Is is hardly surprising given someone who was reading Marx at at fifteen and and sort of evolving, reading Islamic political theology and and responding to the the world around them. It's hardly surprising that you then delve deeper into into continental philosophy into phenomenology. But then you're you're defil Eskander. You um you go to Middle East studies. Yeah. At at Queens at Oxford, and. I, I assume that this is more of a Middle East studies with a history of ideas and political thought rather than the, the traditional Middle Eastern studies, Middle Eastern politics route. Yeah, that's what I mean. Well, this is what I, that's how I essentially defined it for my uh, for myself. So, I mean, I, I, at one point I was actually very serious. I mean, I was accepted to do a, a DPhil in philosophy at Oxford as well, uh, but I was going to do it on my Heidegger. Um, right. Uh, 
and I decided against it um, simply because, I mean, I always had the plan, as it were, to return to Iran in a sense. And I was thinking, you know, I was thinking at one point doing a PhD in philosophy and then sort of then intervening in some of these debates with Iran because I was aware that um, so, yeah, the influence of Heidegger, the whole debate between these, and again, this is obviously a problematic sort of um, dichotomy, which is almost set up, this sort of this debate between the Popperians and the Heideggerians. Um, I was quite aware of that, and I was thinking that I would do philosophy and pursue it through. But then I think after doing it for a couple of years uh, as a graduate student, I, 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 I was left somewhat sort of unsatisfied, and I wanted to sort of have something that was more hands-on. So I think that's why with the DeFi's, I've decided to marry... I'm looking at the kind of the intellectual genealogy, ideological um, sort of origins, as it were, of the Iranian reform movement, but then also doing that in a way which would be sort of philosophically um, and theoretically sophisticated. Because um, more often than not, it's been... I mean, it's usually seen in a rather theological sense or usually it's slotted into this sort of narrative of Protestant sort of reformation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, constantly, and again, this sort of feeds back into the personal dimension about, you know, who is the moderate Muslim? I mean, constantly we have certain figures who are sort of elevated and uh, lauded as, you know, the next Luther and whatnot. So that always sat very uneasily with me. Um, I never really, I, I was not convinced by it. And I also just thought methodologically it was a kind of impoverished way of actually understanding um, thinkers. I mean, you know, we don't do that in the history of Western book, although why should we do that in the case of... Um, sort of in the Muslim world. So um, so I wanted to challenge sort of that Protestant Reformationist narrative, sort of look at the kind of also the material structures which gave rise to kind of reformist thought. Um, and that's sort of, and that's why I sort of really sort of want to examine how these ideas of France, you know, constitutional government, the rule of law, certain conceptions of civil society, um, the critiques of sort of... Um, the rule of the of the, of the juris consult, um, you know, the, the one of the cardinal principles of um, of the sort of the, the ruling system in Iran, um, how these really came out of a quite specific um, context, but also situated within a broader sort of global debate at the end of the Cold War. Because what we actually notice when we look a bit closer is that these aren't sort of you know Martin Luther's. Um, um, so sort of the sort of Muslim Martin, Martin Luther's, they're rather very much part of a broader global moment where, uh, where communism or the Soviet Union has, um, has collapsed. Um, so, sort of, you know, there's the whole discourse around the Fukuyama discourse around the end of history, liberal yeah. democracy uh, and capitalism have triumphed. Um, so, I mean, I try to situate um, these thinkers very much um, in that moment, as well as actually looking at the extent to which, I mean, um, as opposed to being a sort of like, again, Muslim Martin Luther's, looking to the extent to which they are actually heavily indebted to um, sort of anti-communist Cold War liberal thinkers. So uh, people like, again, Karl Popper, Raymond Aron, uh, Isaiah Berlin, Friedrich Hayek, and then how this very much informed their conception of politics, and also just their very social ontology, I mean, how they understand and, um, society and social processes and yeah. social change. 
Uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating hearing you hearing you speak about this. There's so many questions that I have to ask, but before I do, I must just say, and I think I speak for for the discipline as a whole in saying that we're glad that you chose to to go down the more sort of political theory Middle Eastern studies route rather than philosophy. That <laughs> philosophy's loss is definitely our gain. But um, Hiskanda, uh, I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about how you then decide to approach the study of of sort of political theory and 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 these questions in a non-Western context? I mean, you're obviously you've got this this solid grounding in in a traditional Western thought and and the canon of of Western political theory. How do you then? engage with similar types of questions in the Iranian context without falling into some of the traps that that others would perhaps fall into in reifying some of these these scholars and ignoring local context and and historiographies and things like that um, well I mean I think obviously there's, there's a great question um, and it is one which we all sort of grapple Um and I think the easy, sort of the obvious response is sort of a really um, careful attention to um, obviously context and sort of just historicize, historicize, historicize. Um, yeah. I'm paraphrase Frederick Jameson. So, um, so what I would do, I mean, I, I in the work, in the actual, in the book, I kind of use um, to some extent a sort of Skinner, Quentin Skinner, contextualist um, sort of approach and sort of look at um, actually the theorizing undertaken by these sort of religious reformist thinkers as speech acts. And then, and then I obviously look at the context of those speech acts and obviously the, 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 the institutional context within which they were actually um, putting, presenting their ideas, sort of situating within this kind of agon, as it were, where they were, had, you know, they had sort of interlocutors, they had rivals, they had uh, their competitors and uh, yeah. adversaries and all these sorts of things, uh, and are very much sort of situating them within a kind of an, a broader sort of institutional network. So I look a lot at sort of um, editorial boards of sort of various kind of publications and periodicals, reading groups, think tanks, uh, ministries, um, all these sorts of things, and how they're interconnected, and how that conditioned intellectual production. So, rather than actually, for instance, you know, taking a big concept like freedom um, and yeah. uh, sort of reifying it in the mould of the French Revolution or something, uh, which often you get the case, and you get people really universalising certain uh, concepts with a certain semantic calibration, which are derived from quite specific. Um, historical context, whether it's in France or Germany or elsewhere, and then obviously then imposing that on on, on the Iranian context or on the Iraqi context or whatever. Rather than doing that, I really um, sought to kind of understand these um, these thinkers, these sort of networks um, within within a broader, sort of more holistic sort of frame. Um, and I thought that was one of the best ways to actually just avoid that pitfall, which is you know more often than not people do do come a cropper. Uh, because of that, yeah, um, and it leads to, and it does lead to, I say, sometimes quite uh, myopic kind of um, assessments and evaluations uh, of as well. And I think that's you know this the critique of the, for instance, the, the discourse of Protestant Reformation is just such an instance of that. Sure, and building on that, then how do you uh, how do you deal with this this sort of tension between the local and the global? And again, this is this is a question not just for you per se, but but for for anyone engaging in such projects, because you've mentioned the 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 importance of that particular time, that particular sort of 
set of movements that are going on post-Cold War. So how do you position what's going on at that sort of international level with and, and reconcile it with what's going on in Iran at the same time, where there's completely different types of movements, perhaps, but that are taking place at the same time, perhaps even asking the same types of questions, but getting completely yeah. different answers? That's a great, that's another great question, Simon. So, I mean, um, it is a tricky one, but what I essentially um, do is, first of all, we have to take note that many of these movements are very conscious of what's going on, what is going on in the world. Yeah, they're, sure. They're, they're reading these publications, you know, constantly, especially, Iran, I mean, Iran is often held up as a sort of exemplar, but I mean, um, you know, things are just immediately translated, everything from, you know, Kant to Foucault to Deleuze to Alain Badiou to Shizek. I mean, um, and these are, you know, often reflected in the pages of sort of, you know, there's a, usually a section called anti Sheer Thought uh, in newspapers, which will talk about, we'll discuss theories of populism and an yeah. the class. So, I mean, there is certainly like a, there's a, anyways, but like you say, um, these things are not simply... Um, sort of, how can I put it, implanted in the Iranian context, passively um, accepted and then reproduced um, sort of unthinkingly uh, in sort of the Iranian context. Um, rather, what happens is that um, they're translated and certain things are translated for specific, often, reasons, or sometimes they might have more sort of banal and absolutely more um, mundane reasons behind it, but it's, it's, it's important to sort of try and understand the process of why certain things are translated um, why certain others are not, how they are then received, why certain texts and certain ideas sort of metastasize and become absolutely sort of huge in a, in a particular Iranian context when, um, when elsewhere they might not at all, they might not resonate. So it's actually, yeah. and obviously once they're actually taken up and let's say they metastasize, like how are they specifically deployed? And in that deployment, what kind of... Um, how do they become loaded in a sense? How do they become reframed, recalibrated? Sure. recontextualized so it's a question of sort of like translation and reception and sort of uh operation operationalization in specific contexts. but obviously this obviously does link up to um the global and it's obviously a very complex question which you can only really answer when you do the empirical work to sort of trace the genealogy of a certain idea or a certain text um so i try to do that and obviously just to give it a bit more concrete illustration um one good example for instance is um Max Weber's notion of sultanism, yeah, uh, or uh, Karl Popper's notion of falsifiability. I mean, uh, I remember when I would discuss this with um, sort of senior uh, um, academics who would sort of engage with my work and whatnot. They would be like, "Okay, but we don't really understand why these such passe thinkers are yeah. so interesting for these Iranian intellectuals." And uh, part of the work was trying to show why. So, I mean, for instance, Weber, it's you know. Um, it was used by, I mean, the notion of sultanism was used by a particular faction uh, because it had a certain, and obviously, yeah, you can criticize it as a profoundly orientalistic notion, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, but it was used to critique, for instance, the office of the supreme leader and to intimate that sort of all power, all sort of decisions were in his hands. And it became sort of a, a factional um, volleyball, as it were. Um, or a sort of a salvo, a sort of a theoretical salvo in the context of sort of factional infighting, yeah. um, or the case of falsifiability, um, which was often used, despite the fact that it was, wasn't particularly coherent, to critique, you know, 
um, what was often called Islamic ideology, which itself was equated with um, a, a sort of a highly dogmatic, rigid understanding of fiqh or jurisprudence. So, um, so yeah. So, so this is. So I hope that in a, in a, so in a roundabout way, that's my sort of response to your to your question. Um, that you know, it's 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 a it's a complex matter that we need to kind of trace empirically and just see how these concepts travel. And obviously, Edward Said has this famous uh, notion of called traveling theory. But I mean, there's yeah. many other people who have written about this uh, as well. But it's certainly something to for for people to be aware of and to be conscious of when they're when they're trying to do it. And I think you've just raised a number of really fascinating and important points that that I certainly need to to re reflect on and. Uh, and I, I look forward to going back over your book and, and reflecting on that in, in more detail on the back of this. For those that haven't had chance to, to go through the book yet, Eskander, can you tell us just a little bit about the main sort of arguments that you're making then? Um, well, I think I've probably covered a lot of them insofar as, I mean, one of the, the, well, the, main, one of the main arguments is really to understand how the um, so-called Islamic left uh, which is a which is a faction in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution. Yeah, devotees of Khomeini who were Islamists, but had a, had um, you could say were heavily influenced by leftist ideas around um, sort of statist approach to economic um, management, um, the redistribution of wealth, um, sort of a radical anti-imperialist foreign policy. Um, very critical towards sort of exploitation and uh, social justice issues and whatnot, how this faction essentially became, um, in a word, advocates of um, of various Cold War liberal notions, sort of classical liberal notions and neoliberal ideas. So how did this shift take place within the space of 10 years? How did these sort of, many of them sort of hardened revolutionaries um, who often came from quite, you could say, modest backgrounds and received you know, social mobility through the revolution, later emerged as advocates of um, this sort of celebratory uh, liberalism, um, completely uncritical. Sure. Uh, so trying to understand that transition, like what happened in the interim um, and how that came to pass. And obviously one of the, I mean, well, this, just to put it simply, I mean, there's a few, obviously there's quite a few reasons, but... One is obviously factor the question of factional marginalization, how that actually happens, how the left is in a sense pushed out of power following the death of Khomeini. Um, so what I call sort of like it's a parallax parallax view. So as a shift, as, as a push from out of the state, their view on these issues of power, its distribution, limits on power, uh, questions of rights is transformed. Um, and obviously there's the aftermath of the Iran Iraq War and all these sorts of things as well happen in that 10-year um, period. Um, so sort of all this sort of hope and optimism around the sort of Islamic utopia that was due to be forged um, ends in disillusion, which we can kind of often liken to these um, sort of communists who would renege and become disillusioned, then renege, and then often uh, become amongst the harshest critics. So like Arthur Kersler is yeah. like um, is very well known. There's a good example who also had a, was very well reflected in Iran as well and taken up by... Uh, Islamic kind of reformist uh, thinkers, interestingly, and obviously the whole notion of um, um, the sort of um, uh, his famous uh, book, um, which is now slipping my mind, sort of the the God, uh, what's it called? Um, in any event, sort of Arthur Kessler, yeah. uh, Stephen Spender and others. Um, who obviously, uh, but there's certain parallels. Now, so another obviously another argument. 
which um, I make is actually, like I said, sort of trying to understand the material basis of reform, sort of the idea, sort of the um, sort of the material structures which gave rise to, it, as opposed to simply understanding it as sort of a range of thinkers who uh, wrote interesting books and sort of. Um, and yeah, pose as again like sort of Islamic or Muslim Martin um, Luther. So try to really understand how it came from within uh, the state itself. In many ways, many of the state institutions was facilitated. So the religious reformist mm-hmm. project itself came out of uh, a sort of a matrix of state institutions. So like I said, whether it's publications or think tanks and whatnot, and that's where it was born. It was born and sort of like I say, suckered by people who were very much part of. Um, the elites. And obviously another key contention is sort of um, showing how it fundamentally transformed uh, the understanding of political change. So obviously where we had a we had a sort of a revolutionary rupture, revolutionary change in 1979, uh, where it was thought you could have this complete overhaul of the extant sort of state and uh, transform social relations um, in their entirety. Uh, what we see over this period, and this is a lot, and this is a large part because of the influence of, I can say, Cold War liberalism, and obviously the concrete experience of living through um, this sort of revolutionary transition, um, we see that many of these thinkers and inter- intellectuals and political activists really can't, don't cease to think about political change um, in radical terms. They, they actually they completely repudiate that notion of social change and what. Yeah. What they, what they advocate and say is sort of a gradualist sort of tinkering. I mean, this is often we talk about the like capitalist realism, or I mean, I don't want to obviously assimilate it to that, but I mean, maybe it'll be easier, more legible for uh, for your listeners that, you know, what we can do is really tinker. We can't really make any big changes. Sure. Uh, politics is really just a matter of electoralism. And to some extent, maybe increasing the number or the, the, sort of the variety of forces which contest elections, but um, the politics is essentially it reduced to electoral contestation um, so that what we see, and this is obviously part of the crisis, sort of the organic crisis of reformism today, is that because of their understanding, because of their social ontology, because of their understanding of social change, they're actually un- incapable of understanding different kind of political challenges, different kinds of political movements, different forms of politics as politics. Yeah. Uh, so we see this sort of, you know, in the protests uh, through various sort of regional cities and towns um, in 2018, um, in 2018 we see sort of uh, 20, yeah, 2018 we see the sort of um, the reformists really didn't know what to do with it. Um, they sort of saw it as rioting. They saw it as sure, yeah, dangerous. Um, they didn't really think about how can we potentially, you know, uh, channel um, sort of channel these forces. How can we incorporate them into our uh, into our own uh, political organisations. I mean, and this has obviously got complex reasons. Part of it is down to this intellectual reason. Part of it is obviously the question of just, you know, um, sort of competitive, competitive authoritarian governance, which has constantly sort of uh, restricted their ability to contest elections. But, so it is a very complex mix of factors. But what I just tried to draw is sort of, yeah, this sort of transformation of this political faction and the sort of the philosophical and ideological baggage behind that. It's absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I loved going through the book. I, I learned a great deal. And it, 
it really provoked a, a, a huge amount of thought and reflection beyond uh, beyond this particular context that you're writing about. Eskandar, we've taken up so much of your time already, but I know that uh, a couple of listeners will be will be furious if I don't ask you a question about another bit of work that you did, particularly um, the chapter that you wrote in Nader Hashimi and Danny Pastel's book, Sectarianization. <laughs> and, um, and the reason for this, and and the link that that I um, I'm curious about is is how do you think your your sort of political theory background and your your canon of knowledge helps? What what type of things can we learn from political theory for the study of of say sectarian politics and sectarianization? Because it got me thinking when I was reading your book, not only about Iran, but about about other aspects of, of political change in the region and and the cultivation and emergence of ideas and ideologies that transcend state borders at a regional politics level. Um, I mean, yeah, again, it's a good question, Simon. I'm, um, I probably will have to reflect on that a little bit, but I think... I mean, as far as I'm... I mean, what I, what I think political theory and also just... Philosophy, I would say, philosophical sort of various concepts. I say conceptual thinking, as it were, thinking in the abstract. Um, obviously, if it's divorced from empirical context, it can become quite deeply problematic. But what I do think it allows us to do is to sharpen, um, sharpen, and actually deepen, and really reflect back on our on the concepts that we're using so uncritically. We often, I mean, like often, you know, I'm sure you've seen this yourself. Like um, people, you can use often various ideas, whether it's sec- I mean. And a friend of ours, which Fanar Haddad, is very sort of critical, for instance, of the notion of sectarianism. Sure. So I would say he's a good example of someone who's sort of using a theoretical, doing a, undertaking a theoretical intervention to try and sharpen what we think about. So he sort of says that we shouldn't we shouldn't really talk about um, sectarianism. We should talk about or sectarian. We should talk about sectarian identity. And so I think, um, and that's an important discussion to be had so i mean insofar as the contribution of theory i think it is to actually to to sort of force us to step back um and reflect in a very very serious way on uh on the concepts which we which have been so sort of taken for granted and some so part and parcel of the way we sort of speak about politics and um political goings-on that we just we don't stop for a moment and say okay what does this actually mean and how am I actually using it and um, how does um, sort of loading a particular concept in a certain way then constrain or potentially truncate my understanding of a, of a socio-political phenomenon in the region that's like a universal lesson it's not true yeah, it's, uh, sure. to, the, to the Middle East but that, I think, is a, a wonderful note to leave this on with a universal lesson, I guess. <laughs> but, Eskander, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, there's so much for us to reflect on from what you've been saying. And uh, I hope that we get a chance to, to talk again on the show and, and reflect on where this is going in the future. So thank you so much. It's my time, Simon. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Until next time.